Okay, so chapter eight is pathophysiology, and we're going to cover some of the same topics that we covered in chapter seven as well. So an introduction, oxygen and glucose are necessary for normal cell function. Illness and injuries can disrupt the delivery of oxygen and glucose and the removal of waste products. And again, the vast majority of the class, especially once we're talking about medical, that's a lot of things that we're going to be talking about. Are these illnesses or these traumatic injuries that disrupt the delivery of oxygen, glucose to the cells? And a fundamental purpose of emergency uh, care is maintaining adequate delivery of oxygen and glucose. Again, a lot of the times that's going to be our focus. We're going to do what we can to try to restore or try to ensure that air is going in and out, blood's going round and round. If they don't have good glucose, we're going to try to give them glucose. So again, cellular metabolism, we've already talked about it. Cellular metabolism is the process in which the body breaks down molecules of glucose to produce energy. Aerobic metabolism takes place when oxygen and glucose are available. And again, aerobic is good. That's what we want to occur. And when there is a lack of oxygen, the body uses a less efficient process called anaerobic metabolism. Again, anaerobic is bad. So aerobic metabolism. Again, this is normal, this is in a healthy individual, and it's the most efficient form of metabolism. With that being said, it doesn't matter if we're talking about aerobic or anaerobic metabolism, the initial steps of cellular metabolism is the same, they do not change. Those initial steps do not require oxygen, but they produce only a small amount of energy. From that initial step, then oxygen comes in, comes into play, and the oxygen is required to complete the process of extracting energy from glucose and removing the waste products in the process. So aerobic metabolism, glucose broken down in the presence of oxygen produces a large amount of energy. What our body uses as energy is ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So again, that's what's occurring with oxygen present. This is what we want to occur. The, those initial steps, again, those initial steps do not require oxygen. Uh, takes place in the cytosol. We refer to that initial step as glycolysis. And glycolysis only produces a small amount of ATP. And after that initial step of glycolysis, now the rest of that metabolism occurs in the mitochondria where larger amounts of ATP are produced. And again, byproducts or waste products of aerobic metabolism include heat, carbon dioxide, and water. And our body is very good and efficient of dealing with those waste products. That's what we want to occur. 
And the majority of the energy that we do create, the cells create, is used in the sodium-potassium pump. And if that sodium-potassium pump fails, the cells are going to begin to die. So again, aerobic is good is what we want. Anaerobic. Again, the first stage of cellular metabolism is anaerobic. Doesn't matter if oxygen's there or not. That first initial step, glycolysis, doesn't matter. It's going to occur the same. Again, in anaerobic metabolism, the waste product that we get is pyruvic acid, and then that pyruvic acid is converted into lactic acid. And without oxygen, a significantly less amount of ATP is produced. Peruvic acid, again, is then converted into lactic acid. Again, body doesn't do a very good job of getting, or not as efficient of getting rid of the lactic acid. It's, continue, it's generating faster than our bodies can get rid of it. So that buildup of lactic acid is harmful to the body functions as cellular damage may occur from the acid buildup. So it's kind of getting us in two spots. We're not getting good energy production, which is damaging cells. And we're also getting a buildup of lactic acid, which is damaging cells. Sodium potassium pump failure. So the sodium and potassium are vital for special functions such as muscle contra uh, contractions, nerve impulse transmissions. And again, in anaerobic metabolism, the combination of inadequate energy production and that accumulation of lactic acid results in the failure of these cell processes, causing damage, cell damage, cell death. So again, we do not want a patient to be in anaerobic metabolism. So a lot of the treatments that we're going to start in certain situations is to try to convert anaerobic metabolism back to aerobic or try to stop or slow down it going into anaerobic metabolism. So glucose broken down without the presence of oxygen produces pyruvic acid, converts to lactic acid, and only small amounts of ATP are produced. So perfusion. Again, the definition of perfusion is the delivery of oxygen, glucose, and other essential nutrients to the cells and the elimination of waste products from the cells. Again, perf perfusion is more than just oxygenation or delivery of oxygen to the cells. It is more encompassing than that. It's oxygen, glucose, other essential nutrients to the cells. In order for good perfusion to occur, it requires an interaction of multiple components. So components necessary for adequate perfusion. So again, breaking this down, it's delivery of oxygen, glucose, other essential nutrients to the cells. So every component that we're going to talk about is bringing in oxygen, circulating that oxygen to the cells. So things that are necessary for adequate perfusion, we're going to talk about these individually as well. The composition of the ambient air. We need to make sure that the air that the patient is breathing has enough oxygen in it for our body to use. 
We have to have patency of the airway. We need to make sure that our airway is patent in order for air to move from that outside environment and get down into our lungs. Mechanics of ventilation, we need to make sure that air, again, ventilation is the mechanical process of drawing air in and out of the lungs. The patient has to be breathing adequately for good perfusion to occur. The regulation of ventilation as well. We have to ensure that the patient is breathing adequately on their own. Their brain is okay. They're sending those nerve impulses to stimulate breathing. A ventilation perfusion ratio, meaning that there's try to limit the amount of wasted ventilation or wasted circulation. We'll talk more about that. And we have to ensure that our blood is capable of adequately transporting oxygen and carbon dioxide. Again, if there's an issue with any one of these, it can lead to poor perfusion in the patient. And again, a lot of our treatment is going to be based on fixing one of these items. Continuing on, sorry, blood volume as well, how much blood is in the body. Pump function of the myocardium, making sure that the pump is beating effectively. Uh, systemic vascular resistance, how much resistance or effort does the heart have to overcome in order to circulate enough blood? Microcirculation of the smallest of the venules, the veins, the capillaries, venules and the capillaries, and blood pressure as well. All of those components are necessary for good perfusion. So again, any alteration in the components may lead to poor cellular perfusion. Again, we've already talked about poor cellular perfusion is going to be bad. Poor cell perfusion can shift from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. And again, our care oftentimes focuses on restoring and maintaining these components of good perfusion. So again, we're going to break these down individually. The first one we're going to talk about is the composition of ambient air. The concentration of oxygen in the ambient air influences oxygen that ends up in the alveoli for gas exchange. So again, basically it's saying that we need to ensure that the oxygen or the air that that patient is breathing in has an adequate amount of oxygen in it. So ambient air, the room air that we're all breathing in and out right now, contains approximately 79% of nitrogen. There's only 21% of the air that we're breathing in right now is made up of oxygen. So our bodies are very efficient in using pretty limited amounts of oxygen in ambient air. And there's also traces, trace amounts of argon and carbon dioxide as well. So one way to improve cellular oxygenation is to provide supplemental O2. So if patient, something's wrong with that patient and the body needs more oxygen than that 21% of room air is providing to the patient, we can very easily give them more oxygen. We can put them on supplemental O2. We can put them on a device like a nasal cannula or a non-rebreather, which is dramatically going to increase how much oxygen the patient is breathing in with each breath. Partial pressures of gases in ambient atmosphere at sea level. Main takeaway right here, partial pressure is 
somewhat important, but more important, especially for us at the basic level, is this section right here, which talks about the percentage of how what air is made of. You need to know that room air has roughly 21% oxygen in it. Second component is patency of the airway, making sure that airway is open. There is a clear passageway for air to enter the out, from the outside world to enter, get into the alveoli. It's not obstructed by any substances. And what you'll know once we get into treatment and so forth, establishing an open airway is one of the first things that we're going to do once we start caring for a patient. If that airway is not open, if there's an occlusion or something obstructing that airway, it doesn't matter what else we do for the patient. If that airway is not clear and open, the patient's going to die quickly. So that is oftentimes the first thing that we do for patients is make sure that airway is open. Failure to establish and maintain a patent airway leads to cellular hypoxia patient death. So locations of where we may find airway obstructions at. Find them, find them in the nasopharynx at the back of the nose. For adults, probably not that big of a deal if they got something stuck in their nose or they have a lot of nasal congestion because we realize we can breathe through our mouths if our nose is occluded. Newborn infants or very tiny infants, they're oblig obligated nose breathers. They don't realize they can breathe through their nose. So something as simple as nasal congestion in a very small kiddo can cause respiratory issues in them because they are not breathing through their mouth. The oropharynx, back of the mouth. The epiglottis itself can cause an obstruction. You can have epiglottitis, which is an inflammation of the epiglottis that causes massive swelling to the point where it occludes the airway. Have it down in the larynx as well, maybe a foreign body that patient's choking on in that larynx or kiddos, they're prone to croup which is swelling of that larynx as well. Can have an obstruction in that trachea or that obstruction can all the way be down in the bronchi or the bronchioles. Things like asthma attacks, increased mucus uh, production in the bronchioles in those lungs can reduce the amount of oxygen that's reaching the alveoli for gas exchange to occur. Another component is the mechanics of ventilation. Again, an intact thoracic cavity is integral to normal ventilations. Again, what causes air to rush in and out of our body is changes in pressure. So in order for that pressure to change, our chest has got to get larger and then it's got to get smaller. In order for that to occur, we have to have an intact thoracic cavity. Those lungs, those ribs, I'm sorry, need to be intact and able to move with each breath as well. Again, Boyle's Law defines and illustrates how ventilations occurs in the body. Again, we pretty much already discussed this. So Boyle's Law states that a volume of gas is inversely proportionate to the pressure. So increasing the size of a closed container will decrease the internal pressure, creates a negative pressure or a vacuum. So again, this applies to chest expansion. We're enlarging the size of the container, our chest. So same amount of air is inside our chest, but our chest gets larger. That creates a negative pressure, a vacuum, sucked air from the outside world down into our lungs. 
And the opposite of that is true as well. As our chest gets smaller, that increases the pressure, creates a positive pressure inside our thoracic cavity and forces and blows air out of our lungs. Accessory muscle use is used when extra effort is needed for inhalation or exhalation. Again, you're using more muscles than just your diaphragm, using neck muscles, uh, abdominal muscles. And anytime we see a patient using accessory muscles to help them breathe, that indicates a heightened ventilatory effort. They're having to work harder to breathe. That should tell us something's wrong. Using more energy, more muscles, again, requires more energy, can result in early fatigue of those respiratory muscles. Early fatigue, they're going to start wearing out. They're not going to be functioning as effectively. Now we're starting to decrease the efficiency of the patient's breathing. So accessory muscles, again, the purpose of these accessory muscles, all they're doing is they're contracting again in an effort to make that chest larger to draw more air into the lungs. So the sternocleidocleidastoid muscles in the neck lift the sternum upward. The scaling muscles in the neck lifts ribs one and two, which are right up under your clavicles. Your pecs of the chest elevates ribs three and four. Abdominal muscles contract to increase the pressure, forces that diaphragm upward, which in turn forces that chest larger. And you can actually have those muscles in between each one of your ribs working to try to make those ribs bigger as well. Some more terms for you. Airway compliance refers to the ability of the chest wall and lungs to stretch, uh, distend, and expand. So if we have somebody that has poor compliance, that's telling us that their lungs are unable to expand for one reason or another. Something's wrong with the lung tissue probably itself. Not much we can do for compliance. Something that we do worry about is resistance, though. It refers to the ease of airflow down the airway structures of the alveoli. So if we have somebody that's having an asthma attack, again, asthma is constricting those bronchioles, and it's filling that smaller area now with mucus. So that is greatly increasing the resistance. It has a much harder pathway to get down to the alveoli. High resistance, low compliance increases the effort needed to breathe, and that is going to lead to hypoxia. And hypoxia means that the tissues, the cells, are not getting enough oxygen. Compliance disorders makes it harder for the lung tissue to inflate. And resistance disorders results from the constriction of smaller airways, such as uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, and asthma attacks are both resistant disorders. There's those pleural linings again. Again, remember the visceral pleura is making contact with the lungs. The parietal pleura lines the chest walls, making contact with the muscles of the chest. Again, damage to one or both of these pleural linings can disrupt normal ventilations and cause a collapse of the lungs. So remember, there's a negative, there's a space in between the visceral parietal that has a negative pressure. If we rupture that lining, 
either visceral or pleura, air is going to get sucked into there. It's going to put pressure on that lung and it's going to cause that lung to collapse. Again, we refer to that as a pneumothorax. In pleural space, negative pressure is maintained in the pleural space or cavity and an injury to the chest wall or the lung tissue itself ruptures that opens that space can draw in air by way of that negative pressure. And again, we rupture a, the pleural lining, it can cause a lung to collapse, causing air to accumulate in that pleural space. So minute ventilation may also be referred to as minute volume. This is the amount of air moved in and out of the lungs in one minute. So very simple formula to determine minute volume. We times the tidal volume. Remember what tidal volume is, is the amount of air that's moved in and out of the lungs with each breath. We times that number by how fast the patient is breathing per minute. Now in the pre-hospital setting, out in the field, do we have any way of actually measuring a number, getting a number on tidal volume? No, we're not able to determine exactly what this patient's tidal volume is for us. So for us, the big thing dealing with tidal volume is we just need to ensure that it's adequate. Patients breathing deep enough to make sure they're getting enough oxygen. And again, tidal volume is the amount of air breathed in and eat in with each breath. And an average adult patient has a tidal volume of 500 cc's. So every time you take a breath in, you're breathing in roughly 500 cc's of air. So again, 500 cc's, we would times that by however fast the patient is breathing, and that will give us a minute volume. Everybody with me? Making sense? Okay. And again, y'all are gonna get tired of me here saying this, for us to determine if a patient is breathing adequately on their own, patient has to have both an adequate tidal volume and an adequate respiratory rate. If either one of those or both of those are poor, then the patient is not breathing adequately on their own. And again, if a patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we breathe for them with a BVM. Decrease in tidal volume decreases the minute volume. Think back to your formula. Tidal volume times respiratory rate. We decrease tidal volume, we're going to decrease minute volume. We decrease respiratory rate, we're going to decrease minute volume. And a decrease in minute volume reduces the air available for gas exchange to the alveoli. Just makes sense. If we're not breathing in deep enough or we're not breathing in fast enough, that means that there is less air reaching the alveoli. And that air has to reach the alveoli in order for gas exchange to occur. Now we're talking about alveolar ventilation. Alveolar ventilation is specifically referring to the amount of air that is moving in and out of the alveoli in one minute. How much air is actually available for gas exchange to occur. So when you breathe in a normal amount of air, that 500 cc's of air, not all of that air that we breathe in is reaching the alveoli for gas exchange to occur. 
Some of it is staying in certain areas like your trachea where it can never, never reaches the alveoli, no air exchange can occur. And we refer to that, that amount of air that does not reach the alveoli as dead space air. So dead space air does not reach the alveoli during breathing. Again, that, is, that comprises of that air that stays in their trachea, those larger bronchi, it never reaches the alveoli for gas exchange to occur. And an average of 350 to a, of a 500 milliliter tidal volume reaches the alveoli. So that's saying roughly your dead space air is, is roughly 150 milliliters. Does that make sense? Roughly 150 milliliters of the air that we breathe in does not reach the alveoli for gas exchange to occur. Now what's crazy or something to think about with that dead space air, it doesn't matter what your tidal volume is, that dead space air does not change. It stays 150 milliliters, roughly 150 milliliters. So if I'm breathing 500 milliliters in, my dead space air is 150 milliliters. If I'm breathing 250 milliliters uh, tidal volume with each single breath, 150 of it is still roughly dead space air. So it kind of starts compounding on itself. The more shallow those breathings are, the worse it actually is because we're not accounting for that dead space air. Hypoxia. Hypoxia is reduced oxygen delivery to the cells. That is the definition. That's something you need to know. So reduced oxygen delivery to the cells. Hypoxia. Things that can result in hypoxia. Low tidal volume. They're not breathing in deep enough. A slow ventilatory rate. They're not breathing fast enough. A fast ventilatory rate can also cause hypoxia as well, and that's to a point. It has to be extremely rapid fast respirations, over 40 times per minute, to the point where they're breathing so fast that their tidal volume is also going to be affected as well, because they're breathing so fast they don't have that time to take those deep breaths. So poor rate, poor tidal volume, it's going to lead to hypoxia. And typically, pulmonary illness and trauma affect the tidal volume more significantly than the rate. So that is something telling us we're going to have to pay more attention to is tidal volume. And it's harder to assess tidal volume than it is rate as well, because it's pure judgment on our part. And again, we're going to go into more detail about specifically once we start talking about like respiratory emergencies, et cetera. So ventilation. Breathing, again, is an involuntary process controlled by the autonomic nervous system. So what causes us to breathe in and out? There's receptors in our bodies that measure oxygen, measures carbon dioxide, and measures our hydrogen ions, our, our pH, in our body and blood as well. So these sensors are constantly monitoring these things. And notice that one of these items get out of whack, it's going to start altering our breathing problems to try to fix itself. And that's something that's amazing about the, the body. Your body is going to try to maintain homeostasis, that state of normal. If something gets out of whack, your body is going to take steps to try to fix itself or to overcome whatever that challenge is. These receptors send signals to the brain, and it's at the brain that adjusts the rate, depth, of those respirations. Again, your breathing is, in, is controlled involuntary. However, you do have some voluntary control of your breathing. 
I can hold my breath if I want to. I can force myself to breathe faster, breathe slower, bleed, breathe slower, etc. However, if I'm sleeping or I'm completely un unconscious, I don't have to consciously think about my breathing. It's going to occur on its own. So body has chemoreceptors. These chemoreceptors are specialized receptors that monitor for pH, carbon dioxide, and oxygen levels in the arterial blood. Your central chemoreceptors are located in the brain. These are going to be the ones that are most sensitive to carbon dioxide and changes in your pH levels. Peripheral chemoreceptors are located in the aortic arch, carotid bodies in the, the neck, and are most sensitive to oxygen levels in the arterial blood. Again, this is something that typically confuses students because oftentimes it is the exact opposite of how we think it normally or how we kind of picture it should be. So a normal, healthy individual, we run off the hypercapnic drive, also known as the respiratory drive. So breathing is regulated by the amount of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. What sets us up to breathe or how fast we're breathing, et cetera, what normal healthy individual, what their stimulus for breathing is, is the amount of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. So our bodies are constantly monitoring that carbon dioxide. As that, that CO2 starts increasing, gets higher than what it should be, your body says, hey, you need to get rid of carbon dioxide, so why don't you take a deep breath? And that's just what's causing us to breathe controls the rate, and so forth as well. So that is normal. The normal stimulus for breathing in a healthy individual is the amount of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. And again, this is normal. Your body does have a backup system as well, and we refer to this as the hypoxic drive. So this typically occurs where we see patients that are running on the hypoxic drive, these are patients that tend to have COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases. With a patient with COPD that's operating on the hypoxic drive, their stimulus for breathing is the amount of oxygen in the arterial blood. So again, their body's on the lookout for oxygen more so than carbon dioxide. So their body realizes, hey, their oxygen is starting to get lower than where it should be. They need to take a deep breath in to get more oxygen into the blood. Everybody with me? Does everybody kind of understand why, how students get this confused? Because it's kind of backwards of what you typically would think. I, in, my, in my mind, in a way, it was backwards than what I initially thought. And again, this is a backup system. This right here, and we'll get more into it once we talk about respiratory illnesses and so forth. We have to be careful giving patients with COPD too much oxygen. And it's this reason right here. What stimulates them to breathe is when their oxygen levels get low lower than what it normally is. So if we flood them with oxygen and it's higher than it normally is, that's going to, it can potentially dramatically reduce, slow their breathing down. So for COPD patients, we have to be cautious on giving them too much oxygen. Again, receptors within the body measures oxygen, carbon dioxide, pH, send signals to the brain to adjust the rate, depth of respirations. 
You also have lung receptors or three types of receptors within the lungs that provide impulses to help regulate respirations as well. We have irritant receptors found in the airways and are sensitive to uh, irritants. If an irritant receptor is triggered, it's going to start it's going to cause you to start coughing, trying to cough up whatever that irritant is in the lungs or the airways. Stretch receptors found in the smooth muscles of the airway measures and controls the size and volume of the lungs. And J receptors are found in the alveoli and are sensitive to increase in pressure and in the capillaries. You have respiratory centers of the brain stem. There are three centers of the brain that work together to stimulate uh, muscles to induce and regulate respirations. They have the ventral respiratory group, the dorsal respiratory group, and the pontine respiratory center as well. And I'm not worried about showing memorizing or knowing that. Another component is the ventilation perfusion ratio, which is abbreviated to BQ. So B, BQ ratio describes the dynamic relationship between the amount of alveolar ventilation, how much oxygen is in the alveoli, and the amount of perfusion of the alveolar capillaries. And when we're talking about this ratio, we're comparing how much oxygen is available to be diffused into the blood versus how much blood is able to circulate around that alveoli, alveoli to be uh, for oxygen to move into. So this relationship is going to influence gas exchange. If there's not enough oxygen reaching, something's wrong with the respirations, breathing, there's a blocked airway, et cetera, there's not enough oxygen reaching that alveoli, and that's meaning that some of that blood that's circulating around the alveoli is not going to get oxygenated because there's not enough oxygen to go in there. And the opposite of that could be true as well. There's plenty of oxygen, but there's a reduction in the amount of blood flow that's circulating around those alveoli. That means that a lot of that oxygen we're breathing in is, is just going to get wasted, not used, because there's not enough blood for it to diffuse into. So ideally, each alveolus, alveoli, would receive an adequate amount of ventilation and a matching amount of blood flow through the surrounding capillaries, resulting in a VQ ratio that is equal, meaning all of the oxygen molecules that we breathe in are getting used, diffused into the, the blood, and there is just the right amount of blood to accept all of that oxygen that we breathe in. Again, that would be a VQ ratio that is equal. Again, that's ideally. Nothing is ideal, so perfect match does not actually occur. We're always going to have either wasted ventilation or wasted perfusion. Typically, it's perfusion. So overall, perfusion exceeds ventilation, but the situation is highly functional, meaning most healthy individuals under normal circumstances, there's not enough oxygen to go around for all of the um, hemoglobin to be bound with oxygen. So again, a normal or perfect ratio is not, not going to be there. And your body can tolerate these mismatches. However, if there is a issue that significantly alters this ratio, either inadequate oxygen or yeah, not enough oxygen reaching the alveoli 
or not enough blood circulating around the alveoli to get oxygenated, inadequate oxygenation can occur. And we talked about hypoxia earlier. There's another term, hypoxemia, that we need to know and memorize as well. We need to know the difference between hypoxia and hypoxemia. So can result in hypoxemia, hypoxemia, which is a state of low oxygenation in the blood. Hypoxia, low oxygen in the cells. Hypoxemia, low oxygen in the blood. Hypoxemia can lead to hypoxia, oftentimes does. Not every time, but it can. You can have somebody that's not hypoxemic, but is hypoxic. Okay, so when ventilation is better than perfusion, there is wasted ventilation, meaning there's nothing wrong with us drawing enough oxygen down to our alveoli, our breathing, our ventilation, all of that is fine, but there is something going on where we're not circulating enough blood around those alveoli to pick up enough oxygen to then move to the rest of the body. So we got wasted ventilation. When perfusion is better than ventilation, there is wasted perfusion. Meaning in this case, there's nothing wrong with our circulatory system. Blood is pumping and flowing freely to those alveoli, but the problem is on our ventilation side where we're not bringing in enough oxygen for that blood to be oxygenated. And again, some examples of what can cause these mismatches. One of those is going to be patients choking on something. We have an airway obstruction. So no air is able to get into this alveoli. So all of this blood that is circulating around that alveoli is not getting oxygenated. So again, we have a lot, of, in this case, a lot of wasted perfusion because none of it's getting, none of it's picking up oxygen. And again, this middle one is going to be normal. On this side, we have an obstruction in the lungs. We have a pulmonary embolism or a clot, blood clot obstruction in the circulatory system in the lungs. So there's no problem with the breathing. Air is able to get into this alveoli just fine, but there is a reduction or no blood flow around that alveoli. So again, all that oxygen we breathe in this alveoli is wasted. We're not, bodies can't use it because there's no blood circulating to it to pick it up. If the air pressure in the alveolus exceeds the blood pressure in the capillary bed, blood flow through the capillaries can stop as well. So if we have somebody with very low blood pressure, those capillaries don't have a lot of resistance, meaning and we're breathing in deeper, heavy, that means that that airway can swell to the point where it's actually shunting or occluding blood from circulating around that alveoli as well. Typically, it's not something we you know, worry too much about. There's not much we can do for it is the main reason. But this normally occurs in the apexes or the top of the lungs and occurs when the systemic blood pressure decreases. So if somebody has a very, 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 very low blood pressure, again, then this may occur. Again, we're worried about a whole slew of other things right now as well on top of this. So ventilatory disturbances. This is a condition where the ventilation side of the VQ ratio, there's a problem with breathing, getting oxygen into the alveoli. The amount of air reaching the alveoli, such as asthma, which we kind of talked about, swelling of those bronchioles, mucus production, this results in wasted perfusion. Again, perfusion circulation is fine, 
There's just not enough oxygen to go into that blood. Again, we commonly see this in asthma, and in this case, hypoxemia. Low oxygen in the arterial blood is going to occur, which in turn is going to result in hypoxia, low oxygen in the cells. So if we have an issue on the ventilation side, treatment-wise, pretty simple. We're going to fix whatever is causing them to have the hard time breathing. We're going to assist ventilations with the BVM, or we're going to provide supplemental O2 to the patient and possibly give them something like a breathing treatment to open those airways back up. Perfusion disturbances, ventilation is normal or even increased, but blood flow through the lungs is decreased. So something's wrong in the circulation side. Wasted ventilation leading to hypoxemia and hypoxia. And administering oxygen can help somewhat, but the perfusion disturbance may be correct. And again, perfect example of this is very low blood pressure or pulmonary embolism. So for us, which one do you think for us in pre-hospital setting, which one's easier to fix? Perfusion disturbances or ventilation disturbances? I couldn't hear something heat up, but I couldn't hear. Ventilation. Your your volume is no, that was my bad. My volume is very, very low. Right. Ventilation disturbances typically are going to be easier for us to fix in the pre-hospital setting. We can ventilate somebody, we can give them oxygen get the breathing treatments, do whatever we can. Fusion issues, it's going to be difficult as hell for us to try to correct that in a pre-hospital setting. It's going to be hard for us to try to pinpoint exactly what's causing that perfusion disturbance in many cases as well. Again, another component of good perfusion is going to be the transportation of oxygen carbon dioxide in the blood. Again, oxygen must be continuously delivered to the blood by the blood to the cells. Carbon dioxide must be carried back to the lungs to be blown off in exhalation. Again, we got to get rid of our waste products in perfusion as well. So a disturbance in the transport system may lead to cellular hypoxia and hypercarbia. Hypercarbia, hyper, higher than normal. Carbia is carbon dioxide. Increased carbon dioxide levels in the blood. Again, that can be a bad thing. Body's going to try to correct that cell. Remember, CO2 is naturally acidic, so now we can start messing with our, our pH levels in the body as well. So oxygen transport. Again, we've already talked about this. O2 is transported in the blood in two ways. Very small amount, 1.5 to 3% of it, is going to be dissolved into the plasma. Vast majority of it, 97, 98 and a half, is going to be attached to the hemoglobin molecules, hemoglobin's red blood cells. Again, iron is needed for oxygen to bind. So the role of hemoglobin, the protein molecule that carries, that contains, sorry, iron. And there are four iron sites per hemoglobin, allowing one hemoglobin molecule to carry up to four oxygen molecules. So hemoglobin, it has four iron sites. One hemoglobin can carry four oxygen molecules. And once oxygen binds with hemoglobin, it changes terms. It's now referred to as oxyhemoglobin. 
Again, iron is important for this. Without iron, your hemoglobin is not carrying oxygen. So somebody that is anemic, they have low iron levels, that does reduce the oxygen-carrying capability of their blood. Carbon dioxide transport. Again, it's transported in the blood in three ways. 7% is dissolved in plasma in the form of CO2. 23% carbon dioxide does attach to hemoglobin in the red blood cells. Interesting fact, it actually binds to different sites on the hemoglobin. It doesn't bind to the same area that oxygen does. And 70% is transported by the lungs, uh, to the lungs in the form of bicarbonate. And again, it's just kind of showing oxygen attached to hemoglobin, dissolved in plasma, carbon dioxide is transported as bicarbonate, attached to hemoglobin, and dissolved in plasma. Transport of O2 and CO2 by the blood. We have alveolar capillary gas exchange. Again, this alveolar capillary gas exchange, we're talking about inside the alveoli, inside the lung. Again, been talking about this. After inhalation, the alveolar air is high in O2, low in CO2. The venous blood in the capillary surrounding the alveoli is low in O2 and high in carbon dioxide because it's picked it up through the rest of the body. So those are going to diffuse across that membrane, area of high concentration to a low concentration. Oxygen's higher in the, in the alveoli, so it moves into the capillaries. Capillaries are high in CO2, so they higher in CO2, so they move into the alveoli and then are blown off with the next breath. <clears throat> Moving on to blood volume. The amount of blood in your body is going to be a determinant of blood pressure and perfusion as well. We have to make sure that there's adequate amounts of blood in our body in order to maintain good perfusion. Adult patients roughly have 70 milliliters per for each kilogram of body weight of blood, which brings up a additional uh, point. And I don't know if um, Shoni or Shani talked about this or not. When we're dealing with weights in medicine, we do not deal in pounds. We deal in kilograms. So you need to know how to convert pounds to kilograms. Very easy. Take the pounds, divide the pounds by 2.2, and that's going to give you kilograms. So a patient that weighs 220 pounds is 100 kilograms. So again, when we talk about weights in medicine, it is always in the form of kilograms. Weight-based medication is given to us in kilograms. So you need to know how to do that. So a 70 kilogram patient has 4,900 milliliters of blood. 4,900 milliliters is rough is is 4.9 liters of blood. And since blood volume correlates with body mass, the loss of one liter of blood is much more significant on somebody with less body weight than it is on a larger patient. If me, if I lose a liter of blood probably is not going to be that big of a deal. If my nine-year-old daughter uses a loses a liter of blood, that's going to be a really big deal because she weighs so much less than I do. 
So blood composition, 45% of the blood in your body is comprised of those formed elements, the red blood cells, white blood cells, your platelets, and 55% of your volume is the plasma, again, which is the fluid that carries the formed elements. How your blood is distributed throughout your body. At any given time, the vast majority of your blood is going to be in your venous system. The minority of your blood is going to be in the in your arteries. So you have more blood trying to make its way back to the heart at any time than you got blood trying to go away from the heart. Again, it's the percentage of where the blood's located. 64% of it's in your venous system. Only 13 is in your arterial system. 9% are in your pulmonary vessels. 7% are in your capillaries at any given time. And 7% is that in your heart at any given time as well. Hydrostatic pressure, we already talked about. forces inside the vessels or capillary beds generated by the contraction of the heart. Blood pressure. So again, hydrostatic pressure, if it's high or too high, it's trying to, it's pushing its way out of your uh, blood vessels. So if it's too high, it's going to start leaking. Excessive pressures will push fluids out of the vessels or capillaries and promote edema or swelling from fluid leaking. Inadequate pressures, on the other hand, will result in inadequate perfusion. If there's not enough hydrostatic pressure, those peripheral, those capillaries are going to collapse. Now, no gas exchange is going to be able to occur beyond where that occurred at or beyond where the collapse occurred at. Very low blood pressures are going to be required for that to occur. Then we also have plasma on conic pressure. It's going to work in opposite of hydrostatic pressure. Hydrostatic is trying to push out. Plasma on conic is forcing in. Cleat keeps fluid inside the vessels to oppose hydrostatic pressure. They have large plasma proteins known as colloids, have the effect of pulling water into the capillaries. Again, they're trying to balance each other out. And again, a balance between these will uh, must be maintained for proper fluid balance within the body. Again, too much hydrostatic pressure, we are going to get swelling. Not enough hydrostatic pressure, it's going to require poor perfusion beyond that point. Again, hydrostatic is pushing out, plasma on conic is pulling in. Pump function of the myocardium. Myocardium, your heart, may must be an effective point pump to maintain perfusion. Your heart has to be beating fast enough, strong enough to circulate that required oxygenated blood throughout the rest of the body. Cardiac output, which is abbreviated CO, is the amount of blood ejected from the heart in one minute. So our goal is to maintain an adequate amount of cardiac output. So the formula to determine cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. Stroke volume is the amount of blood that's ejected from the left ventricle with each compression or beat of that heart. And just like tidal volume in the pre-hospital setting, we have no way of measuring true numerical values for things like stroke volume or true measurement of cardiac output. So we have to use other assessment tools to come up whether cardiac output is adequate or it's inadequate for our patients. 
the normal cardiac output for an adult at rest is five liters per minute. And again, pre-hospital setting, we have no way of measuring that. We just have to use assessment findings to determine is it good or not. Heart rate, number of time the heart contracts in one minute. Again, heart rate is, is very much influenced by the autonomic nervous system. So if our sympathetic nervous system is activated, the fight or flight response, the heart rate is going to increase. While a decrease in stimulation is going to lower the heart rate. If the parasympathetic nervous system is stimulated, that's going to slow down our heart rate. And if we have a decrease in the stimulation of the uh, parasympathetic nervous system, that's going to start gradually increasing our heart rate back up to normal. So stroke volumes, again, the amount of blood that's ejected by the left ventricle with each contraction. So things that affect stroke volume, meaning how much blood is the left side of the heart pumping out with each beat, things that can affect that. One of them is going to be what we refer to as preload. This is the pressure generated in the left ventricle at the end of diastole. So if we have, what it's meaning is the amount of blood that's entering the left ventricle after each beat. So if we're reducing the amount of blood that's able to reach the heart, we're going to reduce cardiac output. Contractility is the force of the contraction, how strong that heart is beating, and afterload as well. It's the, uh, the resistance or the pressure in the aorta that must be overcome by the left ventricle as well. So again, those are the three main items that are going to affect stroke volume. And here's some illustrations of that. So in this case, we have normal preload. That left ventricle fills up normally with blood. There's plenty of blood to go around. Left ventricle fills up fully. So when it beats, we're getting good flow, a good amount, good stroke volume. If we have a reduction in preload, there's less blood reaching that left ventricle. There's less blood available for it to pump. So when it beats, more less, I'm sorry, less blood is going to get pumped out because there's less blood in there to begin with. That's a reduction in preload. Contractility on stroke volume. In this case, we have a nice, normal, firm beat of that heart. Get good uh, pump, good stroke volume. In this case, you notice there's nothing wrong with the preload. There's plenty of blood inside that left ventricle, but the left ventricle is not beating as strong as it normally does. So again, less blood is getting pushed outward, lowering or reducing the stroke volume. So factors that are going to increase cardiac output. If, I, if your heart rate speeds up faster and faster, more blood is going to get pumped per minute. So an increased heart rate is going to increase cardiac output. Now, that is to a point. If your heartbeat is beating 250 times per minute, that is at some point going to reduce cardiac output because there's no preload there. If we increase blood volume, if somebody has low blood volume, they have poor cardiac output, if we can restore blood, we can give them an IV, replace blood, that's going to increase uh, cardiac output as well. 
We can give them medications to make their heart beat stronger, harder with each beat. That's going to uh, cause an increase in cardiac output, increase myocardial contractility. If we can stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, that's going to increase cardiac output. Again, I, I told you, all your body is going to try to correct itself. So if your body realizes, hey, I'm not getting enough oxygen to my cells, one thing it's going to do, it's going to stimulate your sympathetic nervous system. So it's going to try to correct itself. It's going to speed up your heart, make your heart beat stronger, constrict blood vessels, all in an effort to ensure that its cells are getting enough oxygen. Beta-1 stimulation from epinephrine, increase heart rate, make it beat stronger. Or if we can lower diastolic blood pressure, that's also going to increase cardiac output. And lowering the diastolic blood pressure is how we would talk about that afterload that we mentioned. We lower that diastolic blood pressure. That means that the heart is having to work, not work as hard to meet, to overcome resistance found in that aorta. So the lower the resistance the heart has to fight, the higher or the more amount of blood that's going to come out. Factors that decrease cardiac output. A lot of these are going to be the opposite of what we just talked about. Slowing down the heart rate. Decreasing blood volume. Somebody has a traumatic injury and they're bleeding out. That's dramatically going to reduce their cardiac output. If the heart is weakened, it's not beating very strong. Decreased myocardial contractility. The parasympathetic nervous system is stimulated. They have a beta blockade. Very common, patient takes beta blockers. Patient has a history of high blood pressure. One of the types of medications or the classifications of medications that can be given is a beta blocker, which slows down the heart rate. Or if the patient has a high diastolic blood pressure. Now that an acute change, a sudden change or a sudden rise in their diastolic blood pressure is probably not going to be very harmful for a patient. But if somebody has um, chronic hypertension that's unmanaged and their blood pressure is constantly high, it is going to start reducing cardiac output. It's also going to start weakening the heart as well. System vascular resistance, or SVR, is the resistance to blood flow throughout through the vessel. And what we're talking about here is dilation, the size of that blood vessel. So if we vasoconstrict, if we make that blood vessel smaller, that's going to increase the, uh, the system vascular resistance. Increasing SVR increases blood pressure. So if we can make those blood vessels smaller, we're going to increase their blood pressure. Opposite of, the, of, of that is true as well. If we make those blood vessels dial, uh, bigger, dilate them, that is going to decrease that SVR, and that's going to drop blood pressure. And there's types of shock that is only caused or mainly caused because their blood vessels get too big. Causes a sudden rapid drop in their blood pressure. So again, vasoconstriction, smaller vessel size that increases SVR, that increases blood pressure. Vasodilation that increases the size, that decreases blood pressure. We're going to have pulse pressures. Pulse pressure is the difference between the systolic and the diastolic reading. So if we have a blood pressure of 120 over 100, 
the pulse pressure would be 120 minus 100. So this patient's pulse pressure would be 20. Systolic blood pressure is a rough indicator of cardiac output. Diastolic blood pressure is a rough indicator of SVR. That is the best tool that we have to get a numerical value to ensure that the brain and the internal organs are perfusing is going to be blood pressure. Getting a blood pressure on a patient is vital. It can tell us a lot about that patient. And if we notice that the pulse pressures, the difference between the systolic and the diastolic is getting closer and closer together or is already pretty narrow, that can indicate a significant amount of blood loss. So checking on your pulse pressures can be very valuable for you as well. Microcirculation refers to the flow of blood through the arterioles, capillaries, and the venules. Again, the very smallest of blood vessels. In there, you have precapillary sphincters control the movement of blood through the capillaries. If those sphincters are relaxed, blood is able to reach and go into that capillary bed, allowing gas exchange to occur. If those sphincters are contracted, though, blood is not going to be able to enter those capillaries. It's going to be shunted away from it to another capillary down, down that line. Again, here you can see the arterial or the artery arterial the venules, and then we have these capillaries. And again, you can see these sphincters right here. And if they're closed, blood's not going to be able to enter here. It's going to keep moving on down that line until it finds a sphincter that's open. If they're open, blood is going to be able to circulate through that capillary. So regulatory influences of these sphincters, local factors found in the immediate environment around the capillary, such as temperature, hypoxia, acidosis, Histamine release can determine whether those sphincters are open or closed. Neural factors, influences of the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. SNS influences causes the sphincters to close. PNS influences causes those sphincters to open. Hormone factors, depending on the hormone, can cause the sphincters to open or close as well. And again, we're not going to worry too much about microcirculation in the pre-hospital setting because there's nothing we can do about it treat these other conditions, and hopefully that microcirculation is going to work itself out. Blood pressure. Blood pressure is equal to cardiac output times the SVR in a relationship of stroke volume and heart rate on cardiac output. So increase in stroke volume increases cardiac output. If the heart is pumping more and more blood with each beat, that's going to increase cardiac output. In turn, is going to increase blood pressure. Decreased uh, SV decreases cardiac output. Increased heart rate increases cardiac output. Decreased heart rate decreases cardiac output. Relationship cardiac output, SVR, and blood pressure. Again, all things being normal, if we're increasing our cardiac output, that should increase our blood pressure. We decrease our cardiac output, we should drop blood pressure. We increase SVR, meaning our blood vessels are constricting, that's going to increase blood pressure. We decrease SVR, blood vessels are dilating, that's going to drop blood pressure. 
again, hopefully this starts making more sense once we get into shot is where, and it's where it's applicable for us as well. General effects of blood pressure on perfusion. And again, blood pressure is a very good tool for us to help us monitor and estimate perfusion. Increase in blood pressure increases cellular perfusion. So good blood pressure oftentimes means we have good perfusion going on. Decrease in blood, blood pressure decreases cellular perfusion. That blood pressure that's in the tank tells us the patient's not getting very good perfusion. Blood pressure is regulated by chemoreceptors and baroreceptors as well. So by baroreceptors, baroreceptors are located in the aortic arch, carotid sinuses, and they detect changes in blood pressure. So again, they're constantly monitoring for that pressure. If something changes, your body's going to take actions to try to correct it, maintain homeostasis. Signals are sent to the vasomotor and cardioregulatory centers of the brain. And these regulatory centers increase or decrease the heart rate, force the contractions to regulate the patient's blood pressure. Again, your body's constantly monitoring and it's making slider adjustments here or there to maintain a normal adequate blood pressure. Again, kind of showing where those baroreceptors located in that aortic arch, carotid sinuses, and then sends signal to the brain in turn, increases heart rate or contractility. Chemoreceptors are also monitoring blood oxygen levels. They stimulate the sympathetic nervous system as well. So again, we already talked about sympathetic nervous system is activated. What hormones are going to get released? Epinephrine. Well, what's epinephrine going to do to your heart rate? It's going to increase it, which is going to increase blood pressure. Heart rate increases, blood vessels constrict. All of that is going to increase cardiac output, increase blood pressure. Respiratory rate, tidal volume is going to increase as well. So sometimes we have patients that are hypoxic where the cells are getting deprived of oxygen are going to present with pale, full skin, and an increase in heart rate. The reason why they're presenting with that is because their sympathetic nervous system is activated and their body is releasing epinephrine. The body's releasing epinephrine in order to try to correct whatever is going on. Body cells are monitoring. Their cells realize, hey, I'm not getting enough oxygen. I'm in trouble. I need more oxygen. Well, your body's going to release epinephrine. That's going to constrict blood vessels. It's going to increase blood pressure. It's going to increase heart rate to circulate more oxygen quicker throughout the body. And it's going to increase respirations to draw in more oxygen into the body more in a minute as well. So your body, again, is going to try to take actions to correct itself if something is wrong. And one way it does that, an important way, is by releasing epinephrine. So a review of the aerobic metabolism components. Again, oxygen content in the ambient air. We have to ensure that the patient is breathing in enough oxygen. There's enough oxygen in that ambient air. And if, again, if the 21% that we normally breathe is not doing it for us, put them on supplemental O2. Again, we have to ensure that the airway is patent, remains open. Minute ventilation. Again, that's ventilatory rate, idle volume. They have to be adequate. The patient has to be breathing adequately. 
If they're not breathing adequately, we need to breathe for them. Alveolar ventilation. Again, that's based on rate and tidal volume as well. Again, alveolar ventilation is the amount of oxygen that's actually reaching the alveoli in order for it to be used. Perfusion of the pulmonary capillaries, venous volume, right ventricular pump function, gas exchange between the capillaries and the alveoli, and content of the blood, oxygen carrying capabilities, red blood cells and the hemoglobin and plasma have to carry blood and have to carry back carbon dioxide. Cardiac output and its determinants, your heart rate, preload, making sure that the left ventricle is full of blood before it contracts again. Stroke volume is the amount of blood that the left ventricle is pumping out with each beat. Myocardial contractility is the strength of that left ventricle with each beat. And afterload is the amount of resistance that that left ventricle has to overcome in order to pump that blood throughout the rest of the body. SVR, sympathetic nervous system stimulation, parasympathetic system, and again, that's vasodilation or vasoconstriction, and gas exchange between the capillaries and the cells. So in summary, cells require oxygen and glucose to produce energy and perform work. Again, perfusion is the delivery of oxygen, glucose, other essential nutrients to the cells, and the uh, pick up and getting rid of waste byproducts. Without adequate ventilation and perfusion, cells engage in anaerobic metabolism, which produces less energy and more waste. And again, that's where cells begin to die. Again, the fundamental principle for us in emergency medicine is to restore and maintain good cell perfusion. All right, any questions?